0: What do you tell your kids about the future, about how they should prepare for it, how they should think about it? What have you passed on to them about how it will impact them and how they can impact it?
1: I think what I've taught them is to not be afraid of new directions and new innovations that are happening and to try them. And when you're willing to try them and when you're willing to be the first to try them, you become more invaluable no matter what you're doing, if you're working for someone else or whether you're an entrepreneur trying to do your own thing because you're not resisting the future.
0: I'm Isha Da Vinci. This is The Grift Podcast, conversations to get you ready for the future. In this episode, I'm joined by entrepreneur and best-selling author Rohit Bhargava. This is a conversation about what you and I can expect as we head into the future. Rohit and I cover a wide range of topics and trends discussed in his book, The Future Normal including multiversal identity, immersive entertainment, stealth learning, virtual companionship, psychedelic wellness, and several others. We get into the ways he uses ChatGPT, how he's raised his boys to succeed, and why those who embrace change become more valuable in the workplace than those who don't. It's an exciting conversation. Let's dive in and get ready for the future. Okay, let me introduce you Rohit Bhargava, Did I say that right? Yes,
1: you did, yeah.
0: Rohit Bhargava is on a mission to inspire more non-obvious thinking in the world. He is the three-time Wall Street Journal and USA Today best-selling author of nine books, and is widely considered one of the most entertaining and original speakers on trends, innovation, and marketing in the world. Rohit has been invited to deliver sold-out keynotes and workshops in 32 countries around the world to change the way teams and leaders think the World Bank, NASA, Intel, LinkedIn, MetLife, Under Armour, Univision, Disney, and hundreds of other well-known organizations. Prior to becoming an entrepreneur and founding two companies, he spent 15 years leading brand strategy at Ogilvy and Leo Burnett, where he advised global brands on human behavior, marketing, and storytelling. Outside his speaking and consulting, Rohit has taught persuasive speaking and global marketing as an adjunct professor at Georgetown University is frequently quoted in the global media and writes a monthly column on trends for GQ magazine in Brazil. He lives in Washington, D.C. area with his wife and is a proud dad of two boys, loves the Olympics, has been defied, and actively hates cauliflower. And I also want to add this bit. The most consistent connection for his fans, though, has continually been his popular email newsletter, which he calls the Non-Obvious Insights newsletter and has been publishing regularly for thir- every Thursday for the past six years. Is that you still doing it every Thursday? I do, yeah. In 2022, the Non-Obvious Insights newsletter was honored by the Webby Awards, Internet's highest honor, as the best email newsletter alongside submissions in the New York Times and CNN. So that's pretty darn cool. Rohit, welcome to the Griff Podcast. I'm so happy you could join us today. Oh, me
1: too. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation.
0: So I really wanted to include that bit about the non-obvious insights newsletter, because that's like the action step we can tell people afterwards. I like they can really keep up with you, which is so important. I'm not, I'm not just having you here to take up time. I really want people to get, you know, high quality, um, life-changing information. And I think you can deliver
1: that. <laughs> that's great. Thank you. So
0: in non-obvious megatrends, which is the book before two books ago, <laughs> you called yourself a near-futurist. What are you calling yourself these days? Like, like, how is that? Has that term evolved? Like, what are you? Like, because I just we just re- we just read the bio. I, I just went through that. You've probably heard it a million times, and nowhere in there does it say. So there is this sort of like what your title is, which I think is great, but still people want to know. So are you still a near futurist, a far futurist, <laughs> a futurist? What is a futurist? Answer these questions for us, right? Yeah,
1: I usually feel like I need to put something in front of futurists. So I never just say futurist. Sometimes I say near futurist. Sometimes I say reluctant futurist. And what I mean by that, the reason why I do that is because most of the time I'm looking at what's happening right now and I'm projecting what's going to happen in the next few years. That's my usual time horizon. And I think that's a little bit unusual from what people are used to getting from futurists, which is this is the geopolitical environment and, and this is what it's gonna play out to 10 years from now or 20 years from now. And those are amazing, like the people who are really good at that, fascinating insights. Will they be right? I mean, maybe, partially, maybe not. Uh, but the scope of that is uh, very academic and it's interesting, but it not is isn't really that actionable for today. And so the reason why I say New Year Futurist or Reluctant Futurist is because most of the things that I talk about when it comes to the future are meant to be insights that you can use to do something today.
0: I really like that. I think that's a really thoughtful sort of approach. I mean, Futurists are super cool. I think that's a very important role, a very important job. I want to see more people thinking ahead and a Futurist can help you to sort of think ahead, like not just react to what's immediate or what's urgent, which is 99% of what we do. Like, oh my God, I have to do this now. I better do it now. And so we're never really thinking about life the way we should, which should be like five-year chunks, 10-year chunks, rather than, oh my God, i got to do this now. And then maybe I'll think about that. Because you're just being reactive if all you're doing is thinking about now. Whereas a futurist can maybe expand our minds and make us think in a bigger way and then make better choices in the now. Yeah,
1: I think that's, I think that is part of it to project forward into the future. But I think the other thing is, I mean, I'm not telling you not to do the things you've got to do now. Like most of us, when we're in that realm of doing that stuff, it's not because that stuff is unimportant, right? What I do try and encourage people to do is see a bigger picture in addition to doing that stuff. So as you're doing all these things, like what is it, mean like for the future like when you jump into this particular campaign or you're working on this project what is that in service of like is there a bigger thing that you could be thinking about that might put this into uh, context put it into perspective for you so that you could turn it into maybe something bigger in in the future because you know the, the other thing that a lot of futurists don't do is they don't teach people how to think like they do they say hire me i'm the smart person and i'll tell yeah. you what the yeah. future is and that was never my philosophy yeah. so at least half of every talk that i ever give about the future as a futurist is designed to teach you how to think in that way so even when i go into a trends presentation half of it is about teaching you to think about trends so you can come up with them for yourself yeah
0: it's so you really are reluctantly a futurist cuz you rather you probably just want people to think better think more Longer term, have better context for what they're doing in the now.
1: Yeah, I think that it's like the ability to think like a futurist is a really good life skill. You don't have to be a futurist, Mm. but to think like futurists think is a useful thing. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree 100%.
0: So before we dive into, like, you know, the book and all those. The future let's talk a little bit about how you became you how did you get here tell us about your journey
1: that's a that's a big one yeah (laughs) so (laughs) my background is my professional background is that i come from the world of marketing and advertising and so if you think about what people who spend their careers in the worlds of marketing and advertising do uh, it's a few things it's trying to understand people It's trying to persuade them and hopefully not persuade them to Hmm. do something evil, uh, which everyone comes across at certain points when they see some of these marketing and advertising things that make you feel worse about yourself so that you buy some sort of products or make you believe things that aren't true. So we try not to do that. I mean, some of us, (laughs) uh, but that Hmm. skill of being able to understand what makes people make the choices they make. Uh, from a psychology Mm. point of view, but also just from a consumption point of view is a really interesting background to be able to do what I do now, which is look at the future and try and anticipate where the world's going to go.
0: Yeah. And sort of really prepared to do that. But before you became, you know, got into marketing, what, what was your background? Like, how did you, what did you study growing up and like, how did you even get there? Like, how did you get to Ogilvy? Yeah,
1: I was, uh, I was always a writer. So I, since high school, I love to Mm. write and in high school my passion for writing translated into playwriting and screenwriting and Ooh. that was a really interesting form of writing because unlike a lot of writing that you're told to do in school this was designed to be writing that was spoken out loud everything that you put into a screenplay somebody's going to perform and say to someone else or Ooh. to the audience and that's not usually how we're taught to write we're used thought to remove our voice, like never use the first person, like yeah. talk about how things happen. Like yeah. we meant taught to write like lawyers are, right? Uh, yeah. And argue all points and learn how to debate things back and forth. And And there's a place for that. But the writing that I had passion for was that type of writing and poetry. And the poetry for me was about choosing words very intentionally, which kind of is what advertising copywriters do, if you think about it. I mean, every word that is put Absolutely. in the title, and it exactly it's is. It's got to be specifically chosen, and they obsess over the words okay, okay. like a poet.
0: So, so you're a poet, okay? <laughs> Give me one line of poetry. Let in the moment, now go. Just say something that's poetic. Yeah,
1: you know, this is the this is the opposite of what I would always do, which is obsess <laughs> over the words that I choose over and over and rewrite. No, them, over you can't. And you and have it, to deliver it now. The, I, I wasn't the Mozart.
0: because in poetry. <laughs> Isn't poetry like in being in the moment and just, uh, it's like a, it's almost like letting the words like come to you rather than trying to think them, right? It's like, Um, yeah, let's go. So you go.
1: Be who you are and not who others think you should be. How about that? as a start.
0: Quote of the day. (laughs) Perfect. I love it. It's such a jam. Very well done. Okay how can someone, a young person coming up who wants to like get into this field, what's your advice for them? Like, how can someone become not you, but their version of what you do? I just think that's interesting for people to know.
1: I think one of the things that helped me get to doing what I do now is figuring out what was a priority for me in my career. And for me, it came out of frustration a little bit because I realized what I didn't have that I desperately wanted. And it was control over how I spend my own time every day. So I was working for somebody, I was working on campaigns, I was told we need you to go to San Francisco tomorrow for this thing because it's a big deal. So I don't control where I go, I don't control my day. And and even if I were the boss, which I wasn't, but even if I was the boss, I would still have people that I have to answer to, Right shareholders and uh, the bigger boss, there's always a bigger boss. And the only way to truly control how you spend your own day, I think, is to become an entrepreneur. And so that's what I ended up doing. That's what I am now. Uh, I have two companies that I've founded and I am the boss, but there's no higher boss. I don't have investors. I don't have outside money. I'm actually the boss, (laughs) which means I can choose how I spend my day. And if I want to go and do something, if I want to spend all day writing, or if I want to spend all day on podcasts, like that's what I'll do. And that was my priority. So it wasn't, I need to be doing something about the future. I need to be in marketing. I need to be the SVP of whatever. It wasn't based on a title, right? It was based on how do I want to spend my time?
0: And so what's a day in the life of Rohit Bhargava like?
1: Well, that's part of the beautiful thing. It's not the same every day because I'd get bored with that. So I don't have a ritual mm-hmm. where it's like from this time to this time I write and then from this time to this time I take meetings and this it, it, my week doesn't look like that because I'll do speaking gigs where I'll have to go to different places around the world and I'll be traveling or I'll be in my office in home uh, and I'll be working from home. If I'm on deadline for a book, I'll be blocking up my calendar, taking zero meetings at all and writing all day uh, because I'm on deadline. If I'm launching a book, I'll be out there doing a lot of like, I might have four podcast interviews in one day because I'm in the midst of launching a book, you know? So, so the day changes based on what the priorities are for that particular time. Mm.
0: And, and that appeals to you, It does your particular nature. Yeah, it
1: does. It it wouldn't appeal to everybody. I mean, I know that, that people need uh, a routine, some people, and also the idea of what I do uh is very up and down when it comes to things like cash flow for example right like i might say yes like i just had this i said yes to a speaking gig that's happening a year from now so i know the money's coming but i don't get paid for a while right um so it is uncertain you know it's very up and down like some days you'll have a lot of money in the bank account some days you you know minus 100 (laughs) right yeah Um,
0: but still, it's the thrill. This this is the right life for you. This is
1: the this is
0: the true path.
1: Well, for you, you learn, and you're being true to yeah, yourself. Yeah, you learn um, how much angst these things will cause you, and you decide on the thing that has the anxiety you can deal with, right? And for me, like the anxiety of not having a consistent paycheck uh, is not worth. The alternative, which is going and working for someone where I get paid consistently every two weeks, but I have to deal with all the other stuff that goes with it, I would rather have the inconsistency and deal with that than the opposite. I can totally relate.
0: Okay, um, okay. So, but from a more practical level, you get up at what time? You know, do you drink coffee? Are you reading a book? Are you meditating? Are you running in the morning? Like. How does that go? When let's say you're you're at like today, you're you're in your office in, in Washington DC or near Washington DC.
1: Yes, yeah. So uh, if it is if it's during school, I'll usually wake up around seven, take my son, uh, make my son breakfast, take him to how, school.
0: Uh, how old he is? He?
1: is uh, Sixteen. So he almost has his license. So my schedule oh. is about to change. And
0: then you have you have another one as well.
1: an older I do, one, yeah. My I'm older one's nineteen. He's, not... he's in college though, so he doesn't really. Need me to take him anywhere? Yeah. <laughs> he's fully, <laughs> he's fully mobile on his own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, So you know, in those cases, I'll wake up, I'll take him to school, and then I'll go to. I have like three different coffee shops around here that I like that all know me. So I'll go to one of those and work for a few hours. Uh, then I'll usually come back. I'll do some calls if I'm interviewing people for my podcast. I'll do it uh, probably around mid morning time frame where the energy is still pretty good. Uh, Then I'll come back and I'll write for a bit. Uh, Then I might do kind of emails, have some team calls, uh, calls with potential authors. I own a a publishing company, so it might be calls with the authors that we already have or calls with potential authors. Um, That's like a day if I'm at home. Uh, And then if I'm traveling, then it's very much like be on stage, go to the events related to the thing that I'm there for. I might be going out to dinner with people or networking events. depending on what the, what the thing is that I'm traveling for.
0: Pretty cool. Are you, are you using a lot of like large language models in your, in your writing, in your work or how, what's your relationship with the chat box Um, like?
1: not really, not for my writing. Uh, I do use it.
0: Or well, for anything, yeah. ideating for research. Um,
1: I use it for not so much for research. I use it to evaluate the writing that I've done. So I use it as like a, uh, like a feedback tool. So I'll feed it a chapter, for example, from a book that I'm writing, and I'll ask it Mm one-star review and tell me the things that are missing, and then I'll improve the writing based on that. So, like, I I sometimes use it in that way. Uh, I definitely use it to write stuff that I don't want to have to write, like a letter to the tax authority or you know stuff like that. Like, (laughs) I'll do a first draft of that, and it'll quickly craft it. Um, Sometimes I need lists of alternate words or alternative phrases or themes or things like that. So sometimes use it for those types of purposes, uh, to generate ideas, generate actions. Um, sometimes I have to Mm. kind of things for my newsletter where it's like an actionable tip or two and I'll maybe have it generate like Mm. a tip that I might turn into something that I would actually write in the newsletter.
0: Mm. Right, and is it ChatGPT? That's your. That's the one. Your, that's your usually, favorite,
1: right? yeah, ChatGPT, and then I've also been playing with uh, training it to create my own language models. So, like custom GPTs, um, where you can feed yeah. it some of your writing or some topics and have it yeah, create something for you.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I think that's super exciting, but only if it's locally. If the data stays local, I, that's my concern. Is like this model great, but I'm not going to participate in. <laughs> feeding, training the model, then then goes off and makes trillions of dollars for a few people. And
1: yeah, yeah it's really hard. Yeah. I mean, because we all have so much of our content that's public. Right. And so well, yeah.
0: yeah, especially for for writers and authors and speakers. I mean, so much of your identity yeah. of your content, your creativity, is out there. Well, it's all. And I mean, it's being. Yeah,
1: to a degree, it's, it's already, already been trained on things that I've written. It's I mean, already I been thousands of There out there, thousands of blog posts. Yeah. Like that's all public.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Um, I was uh, there's a interesting thing. A post I saw recently, a couple of days ago. So somebody asked uh, one of the chatbots. I can't remember which one it was. It must have been one of the ones that are connected to the internet. Like, Can you produce? A, no, it was Midjourney produce a picture of some X, Y, and Z. And it produced exactly a Getty's image photo of something and said, here you go, come on. And this is not a complete and utter rip off. I'm all for technology, let's go, but that's cool. If If the LLMs are gonna be public goods that benefit humanity like Wikipedia, yes, let's use everybody's data, no problem. But this is a private company that's gonna make Trillions, these are not billion dollar companies, these are multi trillion dollar companies that will make a few people extremely wealthy by stealing the humanities data. What the hell are we talking about? No, yeah. So, what's your position on that? Just as we're at it, like this whole question of copyright for creatives and the That you're not going to be there taking all your stuff and using it and you're not getting anything how do you really feel about that all right
1: well it's i mean it's going to be impossible to figure out a model of compensation that that really works the only thing that's going to work is uh when the lawyers get involved and the lawsuits start to happen and you're part of some sort of collective action so Getty images is a great example right any photographer or artist who has their work license to Getty to sell is going to get a cut of whatever legal uh, resolution comes from them having stolen all of Getty's catalog. But if you're not part of that, you're going to get nothing.
0: The whole thing is, is out out of control. I, I think big tech, our big problem in the world as we move forward is the centralization of control of these technological behemoths that can run the world and a few they're being controlled by a few people but that's another that's that's another conversation okay um your your latest book is called you've written nine books which i think is very exciting and the latest one the future normal how we will live work and thrive in the next decade which you wrote with henry coutinho mason right coutinho Mm -hmm. in the introduction you write the truth is that the future is abandoned, defunded, ignored, or ridiculed just as often as it is realized. So the real challenge isn't predicting the future, but rather predicting what will become normal. Expatiate.
1: I think we hear a lot of predictions in general for the future. And a lot of them are hope for something that takes off. And the other portion of them are obvious sort of observations of something that clearly is happening already. And what we wanted to try and write about was these really pioneering, interesting things that were happening, but not happening for everybody. And our hope in putting this book together was that if we could spotlight them and tell their stories and explain why they were part of this positive future that we were trying to imagine, then we could help to make them normal. We could help more people to realize them and, and help them succeed in more places.
0: Them. I love that. Actually, I think that's a really worthy exercise. Mm. You know, because if we look, you know, if, we, if you go online in any given day, starting with the New York Times, I sort of like open, my, when the first thing I look at, and when I go on my laptop, is the New York Times. And it's it's beyond depressing. You're like, literally, should I just end it right now? Because (laughs) what they're predicting, see, it's the most, it's just the most unbelievable. You know, dystopia is not in the future. If you look at the news and social media, you're like, it's happening right now. We're literally burning to the ground. Hell is upon us. Meanwhile, it is not, and we certainly don't have to realize that possibility. We could realize something else. Like, that like maybe you've written about.
1: Yeah, you know? I mean, you know.
0: So this is a counter to the to the, the horror stories. We're we're, we're inundated with. Well,
1: that's kind of it's interesting because that's how the book started. It started as, a exercise in wanting to share an optimistic vision for the future, uh, to imagine what the future could be, and almost create a work okay. of of science fiction in a sense, but. The opposite of a dystopian science fiction, right? Not a utopia because that I has negative it. connotations too, of like you know stuff yeah. that we can't control. But that's how we started. But that's yeah. not the book we wrote, uh, because mm-hmm. as we started mm-hmm. digging into the research and interviewing people, which we mm-hmm. did for for three years, we did three years of research as we put this book together. Uh, and so mm-hmm. we started before the pandemic and went through the pandemic and then published the book, uh, sort of two years after the pandemic had sort of hit its peak right and people were back right. to doing things and what we found yeah. in that time frame was that every thing we thought someone should be doing to improve the world hmm. someone was already doing there was already hmm. an innovator there was already a company there was already some sort of standard there was something going hmm. on somewhere in the hmm. world that demonstrated hmm. what the future could be because they had already imagined it and they were already doing it The challenge was that they Mm. weren't getting as much visibility as they needed in order to truly succeed. So the book became a little bit of an exercise in advocacy for these amazing ideas. We thought if we could spotlight all these amazing people doing these wonderful things and put them Mm. under this umbrella of this positive future normal, maybe we could help them all Mm. to gain traction.
0: Let's go through some of the things you talk about, the chapter headings, the the parts, the different sections, and part one, part two, part three, and then the different headings. Let's discuss that a little bit. So I want to run it through first, so just so the listeners can get the vibe of what the heck this book's about, because they have to go get it. Um, Okay, so part one. So first of all, the book's, again, the book's called The Future Normal, How We Will Live, Work, and Thrive in the Next Decade. Part one, how we will connect, get healthy, and thrive. And you, you have, chapter one, multiversal identity, then chapter two, immersive entertainment, certified media, stealth learning, and ending loneliness, virtual companionship, psychedelic wellness, ambient health, green prescriptions, metabolic monitoring. And that's in part one, part two, how we will live work and consume, augmented creativity, remote work for all work deconstructed, reflective cultures, big brand redemption, impact hubs unnaturally better, calculated consumption, guilt-free indulgence, secondhand status, and then part three, how humanity will survive, new collectivism, good governing, the 15-minute city, inhuman delivery, urban forests, new agriculture, waste-free products, millions of microgrids, making weather, and beyond net zero. So that's so cool, I love it. I love it, love it, love it, love it. Let us go through some of these and you just sort of tell us a bit more. So let's start with chapter one, Multiversal Identity. What if we could all be our real, most authentic selves, both online and off?
1: Yeah, the the structure, as you noted for the book, has 30 micro chapters. And each one explores an interesting aspect of the future. And then it also gives you some real actionable steps you can take for each one. And the first one that you mentioned, multiversal identity, was an interesting one for us to start the book with because it focused on identity for each of us, which is a really Mm. interesting place to start because we're all thinking about our identity, but we relay it differently based on whether we're talking about ourselves in real life or ourselves on this one platform, Mm. ourselves on LinkedIn, for example, versus ourselves on Tinder versus ourselves on somewhere else. Like we relay a different part of ourselves. And this multiversal Mm -hmm. identity concept was not about the multiverse. It was about this growing human desire to portray ourselves in multiple ways. And the fact that we're going to have to square our digital versions of ourselves with our real life versions of ourselves and find a way to do that in a, method that feels authentic to us because social media has sort of gone in that direction. right? We first got on social media and we would just connect with our friends. Then it became more broadcasting ourselves to people who were kind of friends and kind of connections or friends of friends. And we went through this whole phase where we would only post good good stuff about ourselves. And then it sort of went full circle again, and we're like, well, that's inauthentic because nobody is living a perfect life all the time. So let's be more vulnerable. Let's mm. share these moments when we get fired and we need help getting a new job and Open to mm. work now. And like these are all evolution signs in social media. And I think we're at this space now yeah. where people don't want to be a different person online than they are in real life, but they also don't want to reveal their mm. entire selves to every connection of a connection of a connection. And so we're all finding that balance for ourselves and that's really what this chapter was about.
0: I love it. Okay. Immersive entertainment. What if you could be part of entertainment instead of watching it passively? So how do you see this playing out in the future or in the, in the, in the now? Well, one of the
1: things we wrote about was the uh, new ABBA experience in London, which many people might've heard of, but essentially the original singers from the Swedish. Uh, band from the Mm seventies came together and they recorded their songs, but they also recorded their facial features so that holograms could be created of them when they were younger. And then they created this entire Mm. show in London where you can watch the holograms performing with a real band inside of a custom built venue that was just for that. And you could
0: regular Mm. seats
1: or like dancing booths. So you could like dance along to the music. And it was this fully immersive experience with virtual avatar holograms of the artists themselves modeled after the artists and then real life musicians as well. So it wasn't just like a digital show that you would watch. It was like real life things happening. And that is one example of how immersive entertainment uh, is going to become in the future. I mean, everything from wearing these uh, suits that allow you to feel what athletes are feeling on the field I mean, haptic, haptic suits. yeah, like all of those haptic things are suits. being experimented on and, and are starting to enter into the marketplace.
0: And why is this a good thing? Like how do you see this being something really good for people? like why is why is more better in this? Sense? So
1: interesting that you uh, framed the question that way because a lot of what we wrote about in these 30 things was not necessarily to argue that each thing was a good thing it was to Mm. talk about the fact that it's happening and that this is going to be normal in the future some of them are good things i mean we're talking about like uh you know beyond net zero or like positive uh, affiliations with like making the climate better like some of them are you could it'd be hard to argue it was a bad thing right but this one in particular Has both, right? I mean, in some cases, you might want this amazing yeah. immersive experience. And in some cases, you might be listening to me describing this ABBA thing and be thinking in your head, that's totally overwhelming. Like, that's the last thing I would want to go to, right? So there are both in many of these.
0: Well, I mean, for, yeah, and I think it's like on a case by case, person by person basis. But I think that would be super cool if it's something that I'm into, like having an immersive experience. I could learn so much more, experience so much more. It transforms my capacity to my, expands my humanity. It makes me more than I could uh, just in my physical body. So that's kind of exciting, interesting, like different, like that's a way for us to evolve in a sense without, you know, going off planet or doing something wilder. It's kind of cool. Okay, certified media. What if you could trust the authenticity of the media and content you consume? Like, this is not an if. This we better this better come <laughs> fast. And I think and I think potentially um we look at the the, the prolifer- proliferation of, of LA, AI content and the deepfakes and all the problems are gonna come from that. Like this is gonna be a mess. It's gonna be like spam in the early days of the of email and be worse than that. Or remember when when you're when you had a in early days of the, of the internet and you would go online and then you'd get like all these weird, like X-rated con, things popping up. And it was like really spooky, you know, like what the heck's going on? Like, why, I'm, what is all this stuff coming at me? I think we're entering, going to enter, entering, already entering that era when we will not be able to trust the content, whatever we're encountering online. So this is not, if we could trust authenticity of media and content is not an, it has to happen. We have to have a solution because This is a nightmare.
1: Yeah, we do. And the good news is that there are solutions already happening right now. And in fact, since we wrote the book and it's only been out for about a year, there have been new things coming Mm -hmm. that were totally quote unquote on trend for this particular thing. So for example, I went to uh, CES and even before CES, the Consumer Mm -hmm. Electronics Show, there are cameras now Mm -hmm. where you can get the camera and it locks the metadata of an actual image when it's taken so that if any future modifications to that image will be able to be tracked through the metadata so you know if an image has been modified or photoshopped or anything's been done to it afterwards. You right. can authenticate yeah. an image at the point when it's taken through the camera. That's an example, right? There's yeah. browser extensions now yeah. where you can plug it into your browser and it'll read all of the Amazon reviews of a product and it will rate them based on whether it thinks that that review was written by AI or whether it was written by a real person. So you can start to get a sense of like, was this AI generated or was this like an actual person who had an experience with the product that wrote the review for it? So those are all examples of this certified media. And I think that more and more we're going to need that because you're right, the trust is really low when it comes to creative media and deep fakes and all of those things. And uh, so we're going to need solutions to be able to tell what should we trust, what's actually authentic and real.
0: Stealth learning. What if you could educate yourself using the very videos and games that are typically written off as a waste of time? A lot of people are going to like this one.
1: <laughs> yeah, we've seen this in in science fiction before, right? We've seen movies where kids are playing video games, flying spacecraft, and then the kids become the actual pilots because they're just so good at using the the tool, the platform. There was a movie that just came out right. with uh, Gran Turismo where they told the real story of a kid who was really good at this car racing game and he became an actual racer in real life. Uh, So there's that example. The other thing though with stealth learning was that we saw more technological examples of this grand promise of being able to download information into your brain. I mean, that matrix sort of idea of like plug the cartridge in and all of a sudden you learn a new skill. Well, that's impossible, but we have now technology, like for example, there testing uh, the haptic glove, which is this glove that you wear, which Mm -hmm. sends electric pulses to your fingers. And then they taught people how Mm -hmm. to play the piano using this glove and it uses electrical pulses. And then you take the glove off and people remember Mm -hmm. how to play the song. So they learn how to play the piano in half an hour. I mean, that is an equivalent version of this like download a skill type of promise that seemed impossible and is is now starting to happen.
0: The virtual reality. I think is the future, you know, people say AI is the future of education. I think virtual reality is the future of education because if you can walk in the footsteps or walk in the shoes or inhabit someone else's life in virtual reality, can you imagine how it would transform your own brain and the wiring of your brain and how you can literally download another being's perception of reality and how that would your own. The reason we read books and we go to movies and we meet people and talk to them is because as humans we need more. We need to step outside of ourselves. We need to see the world in different ways. Can you imagine doing that in virtual reality and how powerful that could be? Like 15 minutes walking in the shoes of a completely different person from a totally different part of the world, spoke an entirely different language and had a an completely different brainwave patterning.
1: That would be amazing. Yeah, that would be incredible. Different moment in history, right? I mean, you could witness...
0: Different moment in history? Yeah, you oh my could gosh.
1: Like the a building being constructed, being in its moment, yes. and then falling to ruins, like all in the span of that 15 minutes. And now all of a sudden you have this that's different so perspective true. about history. I mean, that's a magical transformative experience, potential, virtual reality. Is. The other is having empathy for someone who sees the world not like you. i mean there's some amazing experiences where you can be in the middle of a refugee camp and see what it's like or you can be the prisoner in solitary confinement and experience what that's like i mean these are really deep emotional experiences that are now available through virtual reality
0: yeah Yeah. exactly and then can you imagine so we have a world where we're all divided because we had you know artificial and these recommender systems that disrupted our (laughs) our common understanding of what is fact. And so we're not all in our little silos and we don't have any common uh, collective understanding of what the world is. Um, And so now we're more divided than ever. But can you imagine if you could see the world from the perspective of someone you maybe hated or believed was completely wrong, or twisted or something, some horrible word, right? And realized their humanity because at the end of the day we could have very different perspectives but we're human and commonality is much greater than our differences like 99 percent common one percent different we focus on the differences and we destroy each other and so i'm very excited so all this to say i'm so excited for virtual reality are you excited i mean did you think self-learning was like the coolest
1: thing (laughs) i think a lot of things are the coolest thing i mean i'm a I I always say yes to trying trying pretty much everything except for cauliflower, as you mentioned in my bio, because that's just disgusting and it always has been. But everything else, I will always try. I'm very open to trying trying things. And so it's really interesting because you see the promise of these and you're like, ah, this is amazing. And you really do get good at not being critical of something that's new, but rather seeing what it could be, but it isn't quite yet.
0: So virtual companionship. What if you could develop a meaningful relationship with an app mm. or a robot? I, I think this is <laughs> this might work. I mean, people might need this. It might save a lot of people, but on uh, uh, it's also a little bit problematic. Yeah, it could cut both ways. What are, you, what are your thoughts on this? Well, one?
1: you know, those two chapters actually were were sort of written as sister chapters to one another um, because yeah, exactly. uh, ending loneliness is a is a huge topic, and and I think most people recognize that that's a major challenge, not just for people who are older, but for, you know, a lot of people of all ages. And uh, and so one solution to ending loneliness is to uh, have better relationships with others, right? Yeah. And so in ending loneliness, we talked about some really amazing pioneering pilot programs, such as uh, a housing complex in Europe that was designed so that younger people and older people would live together in this housing complex.
0: Intergenerational, intergenerational living, housing. exactly, so uh, yeah.
1: and the requirement was that they had to both spend a certain amount of time as part of the community, going to uh, hangout moments, playing games, like connecting with each other. That was one of the requirements of of living there, and people loved it because yeah. they felt a sense of community. So yes. that was the the human solution to the loneliness challenge or one human solution. The technological solution is what we explored in this virtual companionship chapter. And that was about finding moments in people's lives where technology could serve a role to help us feel more connected. Maybe it's technology bringing people together, so it's in service of human-to-human connection, just in a virtual sense as opposed to -to face-to-face. Uh, or sometimes it's things like uh, we wrote about a platform and tool called the woe Bot, uh, with a W, which was a therapy bot. And it was wildly successful because what people would do is they would go and they knew this woe Bot was available 24-7. And if they had any questions or they were dealing with anxiety or, or worst case scenario, they were suicidal. Uh, they knew this would be there and it was clearly incapable of judging them. It's a robot. And so what they found was people might be a little bit more forthcoming or more quick to admit things that might take them a little while to bond with an actual human therapist or a friend or whomever before they would share. And rather than replacing the therapy, what they found is in many cases, people, once they became open to a form of therapy, they would then become open to dealing with a human therapist, which they perhaps wouldn't have been open to before. So not everybody, but it was really interesting to see that relationship of virtual to human and how those two things might actually coexist instead of the robots replacing us.
0: I, I don't have a problem with it as long as that digital mechanism w- was in service of human flourishing. So because we have to remember that on the back end of every app or robot or anything is, is are people and people are not always good, even power and it corrupts and give them a lot of power and it corrupts a lot and give them total power over someone which they would have even more than a therapist would because you still have some defenses up when you're talking to a therapist. But if you're talking to an app, you might take all your defenses down and just do what the app says. A lot of people, I think, just sort of surrender their, their boundaries. My only concern would be that it doesn't, that doesn't happen, but I think theoretically this could be incredibly useful mm-hmm. and a, probably a very good use of, of AI um, in service of humanity. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Do you think this is more good than bad or could be skewed well, I can in tell a negative way? I mean, the, early, people be excited about the early
1: results of, of something like this haven't really gone in that negative direction. Uh, I don't think mm. that people generally, right now at least, uh, engage with an mm. app or with a chatbot and let their guard's defenses down immediately. Um, I don't think that really happens. I think people are still kind of aware that what they're talking to. Uh, but what's really important but, but then, is that but it's...
0: it's but it, but talking about
1: well it's available in the moment when it's most needed because sometimes it's just about the timing Mm -hmm. right it's about having that instantly where you were most desperate in that moment where you were most alone you know yeah
0: Yeah, but i i'm also thinking though you see people don't normally surrender their 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 boundaries or their sort of humanity to an app initially but if they're in a in a in a State of disturbance, or they're not well, then they may. So I, I, I'm just a little concerned about that. I'm saying, yeah, this is good, but we have to make sure that, that doesn't happen. And the way that the infrastructure for these things is uh, currently built, there's somebody always on the back end who's really controlling, the sh- calling the shots. And I'm a little concerned about that. until we have decentralized technological infrastructure where the data and what's happening behind the scenes is not controlled by anybody else, but it's native distributed, mm. um, and, and, and completely private. I personally think that, that those things are a little tricky because well, I, I think humanity, mean, the way are- I
1: think about it is based on the incentive models behind it. Right. Which is why I think there's a lot more problematic yeah, things, uh, when it comes to mm. some of the social media platforms that are relying on this heavy collection of data in order to sell the advertising back around. Like if we're going to yeah. worry about, yeah. uh, someone taking. What they know about us and using it for negative purposes, you know, that's the place I would start.
0: Well, I think it's all across the board. I mean, all of these things, this is happening wholesale with with currently with social media and every every platform is a disaster. We've lost our privacy; it's gone. There's It's just it's a joke. Uh, it's a whole other conversation. I don't even want to talk about it, and I'll just get pissed off. Okay, let's move down because I like this. I like. I love your work here. It's beautiful. Um, you talk about psychedelic, I'm just going to run through the rest because we can't go through everything. You talk about psychedelic wellness, ambient health, green prescriptions, metabolic monitoring. What's that general? Those are all health things. What's that about?
1: Yeah, they're all about uh, helping us times. to live live better in many different ways. So Psychedelic wellness is about the promise of psychedelics to really change how our brains operate in a positive way and cure things that mm. previously we felt like we had to medicate, such as depression.
0: And, and what is, what is MDMA? What's it called? These, these Yeah, new, that's right. Or like psilocybin. And, but they're, they're allowing, yeah, psilocybin. They're allowing these new products out again. These products. Yeah, they they're, they're long, transformative. And,
1: and in most yeah, okay. cases, not mm-hmm. addictive either, which is really important to note.
0: Mm. This is maybe post the um, the absolute disaster with the opiates. Maybe like, people are starting to realize that big pharma is evil in the extreme mm.
1: well i mean these
0: and,
1: yeah the addictive nature is i mean if you want to talk about a common thread between what we were talking about before with uh digital technology mm-hmm. and its negative effects on our well-being because it's so addictive mm-hmm. uh, versus mm-hmm. the addiction actual physical addiction of being addicted to opioids or things like that i mean it's it's tapping a uh, mm-hmm. similar element of our brains yeah in a negative sense yep
0: yeah. Yeah, and the big corporations that are that are benefiting off of sort of this human weakness, making trillions of dollars, manipulating people. It's yeah. All right, we're going to say positive. Um. So okay. So you dive into that, and then in part two, you go to how we will live, work, and consume. Um. Augmented creativity. What if artificial intelligence could make humans more creative? Well, has your thought thinking on this changed since you wrote it? Because I mean a lot's happened.
1: Well, you know, uh, interestingly enough, we were writing that chapter as we were playing with ChatGPT and and sort of at the early days of of it. Um so it was written with full knowledge of generative AI and and we'd been using it ourselves for more than a year, I mean experimenting with different tools and mm-hmm. platforms in that space. So this wasn't written and then ChatGPT came along. I mean this was <laughs> during that whole thing. That was in response to it sort of. Mm-hmm. And the idea was yeah. that if You put something like this tool to generate this uh, writing immediately in the hands of someone who is already a great writer. You could make them more prolific more quickly and help them to do what they're already doing faster. Uh, And that's been my experience of using it as well. Now, the, the, the narrative and the things that we're afraid of is, is it going to just replace us? Because it can just write all these things. And I don't think it's there to that point yet, but I do think that it can replace terrible writing or formulaic things that are written. So to me, the bigger danger is, the career danger is for ChatGPT or generative AI to take over, for example, contracts, which is very formulaic, right? And so now instead of having a small army of people working on contracts, you could have generative AI do the first draft and then have someone who's an experienced legal professional go through and just make sure it's correct so that's pretty disruptive in that space
0: yeah so i've been thinking about this whole artificial intelligence and the idea that we would sort of offload i agree with the contract i think for there's certain careers certain professions certain roles certain activities where Having this kind of intelligence is is such a gift and it speeds up research, medical research. I mean, tests, testing, uh, especially in medicine, in law, in innovation, in a lot of things, it could be very, very useful. I have concerns with the whole creativity, creativity in in, in quotation marks because the different kinds of creativity, but we, we, we take a child and we put them through 20 years of school, maybe 30, maybe 40, maybe some I'm going to live, I'm going to learn forever, to build our intelligence, to develop our brains, to be better thinkers, to be, and, and that's a whole exercise. And now we're going to offload our intelligence work to a robot. So we get our brains atrophy and we get really stupid. sounds like that's what's going to happen to a large chunk of people. And I, I can't, just can't see that being a positive. Why, why would we want to do that? Like why I want to think, well, again, I, I mean, if think it it does a turn long out, way.
1: if our future turns out to be more about replacement, then yeah, we're in trouble. Uh, and most of the time when we are looking at these technologies and when, when we're looking at the, the positive potential for it, it's not to replace it's to augment. And you'll see that over and over exactly. in this book that,
0: but it was, I think. But I think here's what happens. I think 20% of the population it will augment, and then for a large chunk it'll just replace. Let's say let's look at ways or Google Maps or these you know these GPS apps. Um, you keep using them, you will forget how to get someplace. I think a lot of people who never got someplace by before, never knew before, they don't know how to navigate by their nose or just read a map. Forget the map. Just navigate with your good common sense. That's a terrible loss of a skill because in a frickin' you know, disaster where there's no frickin' Wi-Fi and no frickin' GPS, excuse my language, what the heck are they gonna do? Why are we offloading human intelligence losing our capacity to be awesome? See, I think that's a flaw. That's a big, big, big mistake. Kevin Kelly said, ChatGPT and these large language models are great interns. I agree 100%. You're already educated, you're already smart, you're already a genius. You can use these tools and it's awesome. But if you're not, or if you have access to these tools before you ever learned how to do it as a human. What are we doing to the human brain? We know how malleable and plastic our brain is. If we don't exercise it, it'll atrophy. This is a bad idea for humanity. What do you say to that?
1: I think that it, uh, I think that it could be, I think that we, but it's not that this has never happened before, right? I mean, as soon as we started taking kids through elementary school and teaching them how to type instead of teaching them cursive, uh, even though there's all this science that says, if you write something down, you actually learn it better. You know, we did the same thing. Um, and so, and then when everybody was forced to do pandemic virtual schooling, and all of these children at really formative ages lost the chance to connect with each other in person or have recess or like these really formative things that happen for kids at this very specific age, like a kindergartner who had to go through pandemic as a kindergartner is behind quantifiably with their peers yeah. because they didn't have that moment other kids had who went through that and did it in person. So there is science and awareness about the fact that we are missing something here. And the good news is that we tend to overestimate how quickly things will change based on these new technologies coming out. And we think it's all going to happen right away. And and, uh, if anybody's dealt with any public school system ever, you know how fast they move, (laughs) which is to say not fast at all um to the point where many of them just decided with ChatGPT, like we're just gonna ban it obviously that doesn't work because if a kid can use ChatGPT to write their essay then you know you could ban it all you want but they're gonna go home and figure out how to use the tools right the smart schools are saying well let's teach them what this tool is good for and what it isn't because it doesn't just take a prompt and write an essay if you've ever tried to do that it doesn't yeah, come no, up with wrong. it yeah. doesn't replace what you would do. And it doesn't come up with something that any reasonable teacher would look at and say, Oh, you wrote that. So you can't get away with it. Right. It's not like we have to teach the ethics of not doing that because it, it does it perfectly. It doesn't do it perfectly. It doesn't work like that. And so right now is the moment when I think we have yeah. the opportunity, because it's not ubiquitous and it hasn't replaced everything. I mean you know you could make the same yeah. argument about gps that, that you were saying like did gps reduce our yeah. sense of ability to tell where we are yeah it did but does GPS yes, it, it right screwed now, it up right
0: and now? people follow the gps into going to dangerous yeah, places do, but because they know
1: common sense and GPS anymore. is not at the point right now where you press one button get in your car and do nothing and it takes you there which it may be one day but it's not there yeah, like you probably. still have to follow the turns. You still have to actually stop at the stoplight. Like you still have to do those right things.
0: But soon we'll have self driving cars and the
1: And
0: we'll end up in, in a bad neighborhood. Yeah, so. like we do oh, so
1: on. is the future going to be that? Yeah, probably. But it it doesn't Something happen now. Good, and yeah. I personally don't think that self driving cars are going to be uh, a huge portion of the traffic on the road in my lifetime. And, you know,
0: hmm. I just here's don't what, think it's going to be there. Yeah. Here's my, here's what I think needs to happen. We need to teach people not to use, not to be users of ChatGPT, but how to build your own freaking model, get your data, have your model localized and you build your own model. That to me is mastery of AI. Otherwise we're just pawns and big AI game. They're using again. It's this big tech on steroids. Now, if it was bu- if it was abusive, now it's going to be exponentially abusive. And if we really are being honest and intelligent, and we give a crap about humanity, we would say we have this thing now: large language models. It can do all this stuff. But we're gonna we're not going to teach kids to use it. We're gonna teach kids to build it, to execute what they wanna execute with it. Then we have mastery. Then we are like, okay.
1: Well, yeah, I that's mean I cool. think I think that's that's true to some degree, but I don't think that we're living in a world now where you need to know how to build everything in order to learn how to use it responsibly. Like I don't know how to build my car, but I can still be a responsible driver of the car. I have to yeah, learn yes, how but, to do that. Right? Yes. But I don't need yes, but the to know difference between... all of those details unless I choose that as my mastery space. So yes. we have to do it but difference... in such a way that teaches them like what is the right thing that they should know how to do so that they don't give up control of thinking to this yeah. tool.
0: But the di- the difference between digital technology, the way it's constructed, and driving a car is when in digital technology, you are the product, you're part of the product. So the, you're the user, you're the, the interface is built to extract from you so if that's all you can do you're a victim and not a master of the technology and i really really feel that that's the difference between driving a car you get a car you drive a car you can stop the car the car is not driving you but with this, uh, these other things
1: you, know, I mean, if you go there the, and the only like, way okay, to fight, the only happening. way to fight back yeah. against that i think is to look mm-hmm. at where in digital technology has a tool been built where you're not the product, where you are the master, right? And I would say Microsoft Word is one example. I mean, I pay for using Microsoft Word, but it's a blank slate. Like I create what I create with it. I've learned how to use it. And it's a tool for me. I don't feel like Microsoft Word does my thinking for me. I don't feel like it uh, is collecting or stealing my data because I paid for it. Right, And part of the challenge is that we have this model where we feel like media should be free. We feel like software should be free. We feel like social media platforms should be free. And you know what happens when it's free, right? You're the product, they're selling you, and that's how they're making their money. So part of the solution is that we have to change our mindset to say, look, if we don't want to be the product anymore, if we don't want to be victimized anymore, we should be willing to pay for this service. And because we're paying for it, we should demand certain things. And one of them is privacy, and one of them is control, and one of them is autonomy. and you know, because we're paying for it. Now we're a customer. We're not the target.
0: Okay. and That's why I'm, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for like the Web3 possibilities, because I think it's, that's the first attempt really to reconfigure that model, that extractive model and give users back control. But I think humans, we also have to update our mindset to reclaim our autonomy and using technology not having it use us. And I we re- really need that big shift to happen. Don't you agree?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. Um and I think that it's a it's a perception change for us. Um, but also mm-hmm. it's uh it's maybe some legislation that needs to happen also. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. yeah. So part three is how humanity will survive. And you talk about new collectivism. What if startup founders dreamed of more than venture capital and unicorns? <laughs> that that's great. <laughs> Like, tell us about that.
1: Yeah, that one um, was about how we could have a positive uh, financial outcome if we thought about something other than just exit, Um, as in let's take this thing, build as many users as possible, charge nothing, make nothing, lose money, and then flip the business by selling it to Google for 300 million dollars, which is sort of the startup mindset for many of these uh, entrepreneurs. And that builds no long-term value. It demonstrates no long-term thinking and it has skewed incentives. And when you have those types of skewed incentives, you get exactly what we get when we see these things go out there. And the more success stories we see of someone who did that and won, the more it becomes a Mm -hmm. desired outcome for other people.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right. There's so many uh, other good things here. Let's end on a good one making weather and beyond net zero let's talk about climate change
1: yeah climate change is um i mean that's that's a big one um but the making weather one i think is more uh, maybe concrete for people um it's very much about the new technologies that are coming out that allow us to Mm -hmm. exert some sort of control over weather in general so things from cloud seeding For example, which many people might've heard of where you put silver ions into clouds to force it to rain so that you basically make it rain in one place and not in another. Um, That's one example. Uh, Lots of this technology, satellites that are tracking weather and perhaps being able to impact weather, Like that's gonna be a huge area moving forward. Um, And one that we're watching closely, but that isn't really mainstream yet. And as you get later in the book, I think you find things that are maybe a little more futuristic in terms of their impact, uh, but still happening now to some degree.
0: What do you want people to take away from the book?
1: I hope they take that there are reasons to be positive and optimistic about the future that aren't based on blind hope, that are based on actual reality and based on things that are happening right now. And I also hope that for the next generation of entrepreneurs, and when I say that, I don't just mean young people because, you know, there are 50, 60, 70 year olds who could start companies, but, you know, they're in the next generation because they just started their first company. Uh, But what I hope is that that next generation of entrepreneurs sees the potential to innovate something that can actually positively impact the world and that there's a market for that.
0: So as a dad, what do you tell your, your kids about the future, about how they should prepare for it, how they should think about it? I mean, they've grown up with you and this is the work that you do. So what, what have you passed on to them about the future and what, how it will impact them and how they can impact it?
1: I think what I've taught them is to not be afraid of new directions and new innovations that are happening and to try them. And when you're willing to try them and when you're willing to be the first to try them, you become more invaluable, no matter what you're doing. If you're working for someone else or whether you're an entrepreneur trying to do your own thing, because you're not resisting the future.
0: See that again, when you're willing to be the first to try it, you become more valuable. Talk about that. That's so good. Yeah.
1: Because you are, you're not resisting the future. You are embracing what's going to happen next, and you will guaranteed be either working in a place where there are people who resist the future and you'll be working for someone, or you'll be working in a, in a world where whoever's able to embrace that first will have an advantage. And the younger you are, the less risk involved in doing that, right? Because you don't have the family, you don't have the house, you don't have the, you know, if you ever get those things like, <laughs> right, you just, you, you have more opportunity. And I think that one of the greatest problems with that young people impose upon themselves right now is this impatience to have it all quickly when they have lots of time to actually figure that out and move careers and shift from doing one thing to doing the next thing. You don't have to find your passion when you're 22. like. You got time <laughs> to do that. Like figure it out by doing something and trying something and seeing if you like it. And if you don't, then find your path to doing something different that you like and be okay with the fact that maybe your passion isn't the thing that you make money on. Like you might be really good at something that makes money, but it's not your passion. So do your passion separately and like make make money doing the thing that you're really good at. That's okay. I love it. So
0: I ask all of my guests to you know, give our listeners like one thing to do because there's a lot of content, a lot of information. What what sort of one thing that you'd want them to think about or do or shift, um, having listened to you and having listened to this episode, based on your vantage point and expertise, experience.
1: Well, I'll give you a very tactical one, um, and this is one that I share often with with audiences because I think it's a great way to shift your perspective, and that's something that I think we all can benefit from doing, but it's not an easy thing to make actionable, right? Like I can tell you, hey, shift your perspective like see an unusual perspective yeah. from somebody who's not like you. but like how do you do that right? Well my practical yeah. way mm-hmm. of doing that that I would suggest for everybody is go to a bookstore, either an airport or a bookstore or wherever, and pick up a magazine that is not for you on something that you've never been interested in. Like pick up a magazine about uh, sewing or a magazine about tattoos or one about uh, grunge music or you know retro, like pick up a magazine about something you would never pick up because when you yeah. do that, you take a deep dive into someone else's passion who's not like you. And you do that through the articles, through the ads, through the celebrities that you see and you start to build empathy for somebody who loves things that you either never heard of or. Find stupid, maybe, <laughs> right? Like it's okay. Like you don't necessarily need to fall in love with those things. But when you do that in a magazine, which is highly visual, not that expensive, and takes minimal amount of time, it's a great way of transporting yourself into someone else's perspective, which is otherwise really difficult to do.
0: So, what are you working on? <laughs> what's What's next? What's next? Uh, new book uh,
1: is the next thing. Yeah, new book is the next.
0: What? A new book? What's the next? How often do you put out a book? Like every couple of years? I'm I've been on years.
1: a path to doing one pretty much every year um, at this point. Shut yeah. up. Yeah.
0: Whoa. So when's the next one? What's the next one about? And <laughs> when's it coming out? The
1: next one is, uh, is sort of a prequel to my other books because it's about how to be a non-obvious thinker. So it's not about trends or the future, mm. but it's about the type of thinking mm. that allows you to become somebody who sees trends or sees the future. And it's called non-obvious thinking how to see what others miss that's the title i
0: love it and that's so succinct and tight and how long is it going to be very short less than less than 200, less than 200
1: pages, pages uh, very short and uh, very short chapters but very actionable and stories and it's meant to be yeah. for a broader broader audience so you should be able to read I it and read it Everybody. very easily
0: okay this was This was really great. So the book, folks, is The Future Normal, How We Will Live, Work, and Thrive in the Next Decade by Rohit Bhargava and Henry Coutinho Mason. I will put the link in the description, as well as Rohit's um, all contact information website. And then I think you should get the book. And you should also get his non-obvious insights newsletter, which comes out every Thursday. And you can sign up for that and keep up with Rohit and his really, really good, insightful, smart thinking. So you'll get all of that in the description. Rohit, so when's the book coming out? Uh,
1: it will be out in May of 2020. Oh,
0: already? Yeah,
1: it's pretty much done. Yep.
0: Okay, so then you'll come back and talk
1: about that. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> yep.
0: Awesome. This has been great. Thank you so much for Thank coming. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Make sure to listen, follow, and subscribe for new episodes wherever you get your podcasts and on our YouTube channel.